Hey, let's look together at the conclusion of 2 Peter. That doesn't mean that we're finishing our lessons in 2 Peter, but we're nearing it, I'm sort of dragging it along here at the end because there's so many great truths that I need us to make sure we're locked in on in this great epistle. So as you remember, this is Peter's farewell address And he is writing very succinctly and with such passion to the church because he's warning the church before he loses his life. And basically he is saying to the church, I never want you to stop growing in your faith. I want you to grow in your knowledge and your insight into the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And that, of course, sustained growth is possible because... Through faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Lord has granted, he says, for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so in Christ Jesus, we are partakers of his divine nature. And he's telling us not only you're a partaker of that, but you are one to grow in that. So he's challenging the church to continue in that, in that direction. And then at the end of the chapter, the first chapter, he gives us some insight to there's some trouble among the church because there are false teachers among them. And those were wicked men who actually stated that Peter and the other apostles were coming up with these cleverly described myths about uh, the Lord coming again. And, And they were refuting that, saying that he would not return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And so that makes sense because no sinfully charged person in greed and sexual immorality would ever want to know that Christ is going to return and hold them accountable. So they just discount that altogether. They claim that that's not going to happen, that it's just a a myth. That's what the false teachers were saying, just denying that the Lord would return. And many in the world make that same fatal mistake even today, don't they? I mean, we see it as we uh, watch people and hear them. They say there is no God. And of course, since there is no God, they are not subject to him. What a fatal, eternally flawed mistake that is. Or they say that there is no creator. And since there is no creator, then there is no created divine order in which creation lives within. And so they try to disconnect themselves from even the most basic of biology that God has created in in the world today, saying that they are not accountable to any kind of order from a divine creator. Well, Paul explains that those kind of people are without excuse. And I keep referring back to this passage in Romans because it is the passage for us to know in this season of the culture. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, he writes. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now Peter spends chapter two revealing this false identity, this, this, these false teachers and their identity and telling us how to spot them and assuring us that the reality is God is gonna return again and that he will judge all things that's gonna happen in the future. And he remember in chapter two, he refers back to, do you not remember when the angels were sinful and God judged them? 
And do you not remember when all the world was sinful and every intention of their heart was sinful against God and God judged them with, with the flood in Noah's day? And do you not remember in the sexual immorality and the rampant sin in Sodom and Gomorrah how God rained down fire from above in judgment? And he refers back historically to say that that's the way it's going to be in the future. Though God flooded the world with a flood, uh, devastated the world with a flood and judged it, he will do the same, not with water, but with fire. And that judgment is coming. And he is telling those who are questioning that, that God will return and he will return in glory. And he says, I want you to remind you that I saw him in his glory and he points back to the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw the Lord in his glorious state. And he said to them, I saw him in that way and I will see him when he returns in that way. And he reminds them of the Old Testament prophets who correctly foretold of the first advent of Christ. And he says that they will be just as correct in the second advent of Christ as they have prophesied about it. So now he's in this final chapter responding to the to these scoffers who flippantly say, is the Lord really coming back? If he's coming back, what's taking him so long? And Peter is making his argument that the Lord is returning and you should be very much aware of that. So having very little time in his life left, he writes out this letter and moves it quickly to the churches that they might read it. Peter is confident that Nero would soon give the execution orders and his life would be gone. So with clarity, he recaps the entirety of his life's teaching in this little three-chapter letter, and he refutes those who are denying those truths that he has been teaching. Now with that, let's look to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Hey, just you might um, just circle that phrase, day of the Lord, because we're going to come back to that. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set afire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Again, in chapter 3, verse 12, you might circle that phrase, day of God. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. The day of the Lord. That phrase in verse 10 is a very important phrase. It is the phrase that where the apostle is explaining God's sudden, sudden and shocking burning away of the heavens, and I believe that to be the atmosphere, the sky. 
uh, what you and I breathe and what we see and the elements, the very universe and everything contained therein, all those will be burned up and dissolved and expose all the things on earth, the works of the earth. And for the unsaved, that will be a dreadful, cataclysmic day in which there should be just a horror, a terror that would strike in their hearts who would understand that. In fact, the scripture mentions the day of the Lord multiple times, 19 times throughout the scripture, we find that phrase, day of the Lord. Now there's, I don't want to get too deep into this, but with most prophecies, there's an adjustment of time in which the prophet is writing. Oftentimes it could be the the prophet is writing about the day of the Lord that is imminent. It's one that's coming soon like the Babylonians coming to destroy Israel that was described as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is also described in the tribulation period. It's the beginning of the day of the Lord, and it's a, it's a time where God's wrath and fury and judgment is exposed on the earth. And then the ultimate day of the Lord is at the end of the thousand-year reign in which Christ will come, and he will completely demolish and destroy all things. See, when we're talking about the day of the Lord, we're thinking about this movement of God in judgment against the sinfulness of mankind. And here the prophet Isaiah is writing in that way in the 13th chapter. Listen, this description of the day of the Lord. Well, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them and they will be in anguish like a woman in labor and they will look aghast to one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put and into the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Obviously, the day of the Lord is not something for which you and I are excited to come. But yet Peter is telling us to long for a day. Why, why do we not long for this day? We don't long for this day because we know that people will experience the holy wrath and fury of God. God's righteous judgment is going to come. And we have friends and family and co-workers and fellow students and neighbors and others that we know will experience the day of the Lord except that they come to faith in Jesus Christ by believing in the words of the gospel. So we long for them to come to Christ so that they don't experience the day of the Lord. So we don't want to rush that day. Instead, we are grateful for God's patience and long-suffering in this age of grace in which he has treasured the gospel to the church that we might share that good news of Christ to all people. We're longing for the patience of God, but knowing that there is a day of the Lord that is coming. But what we do long for is what Peter describes as the day of God in verse 12 or the day of eternity as he describes in verse 18 at the end of the chapter, which we'll get there in about uh, two more weeks. So here he's saying that there's a dread in the day of the Lord, but following the day of the Lord is what you and I are longing for. It's the day of God, the day of eternity. 
So we need to know the difference because it might be a little bit confusing when you read the day of the Lord or the day of God and which one is judgment and which one is good for those who are the saints of the Lord. But let me just remind you that for over 2,700 years, God has been warning people about the day of the Lord. In fact, through the prophet's words like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and um, Amos and Zephaniah, all those are, are heralding that warning, the day of the Lord is coming. Peter and Paul, the great leaders of the church, warned of the day of the Lord. They spoke of it to the church. And Jesus himself gave very distinct warnings about the day of the Lord. John, in his revelation that was given from heaven, was clear about what the day of the Lord would be like. So we long not for the day of the Lord, we long for what follows the day of the Lord, the eternal day of God in which we will enter forever into our home with him. And we will be made glorious and righteous as Christ himself is glorious and righteous. The day of God is emphasizing this culmination of the redemptive plan that you and I treasure in the scripture. It is the restoration of all things, the eternal life and the blessings for those who belong to Christ. We long for those days because we will be resurrected and transformed, fully redeemed, given imperishable bodies that are made glorious and right like Jesus. And we will be free from every burden and every weakness, failure and sin. We will be fully conformed, listen to this, fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What a day that will be the day of God, and on that day we will behold the glory and the majesty of God himself. And for the first time since Genesis chapter 3, sin will be eradicated, and all of its effects will be gone, and we will know and experience only holiness and righteousness beginning on the day of God, the day of eternity. And when we reign with Christ and in, in his eternal kingdom, participating in his joys and in the responsibilities of his rule, we will share in his glory and his authority and his inheritance. It is that day for which we long. As the children of God, we are eagerly waiting for the fulfillment of the redemption that God has promised to us. And so we fix our eyes for that glorious hope that lies ahead. For when Christ appears, we shall be like him, transformed into his likeness and dwelling in his eternal presence. What a day of eternity of God that will be. Therefore, let us live with assurance that the best is yet to come. And let us hope and aspire to pursue holiness and eagerly anticipating that day which will be the fulfillment of the redeemed. Now, as noted last week in verse 12, prior to that, the Lord is going to destroy and consume all things. Prior to that, the earth, the sky, and beyond will be destroyed. Look what he says in verse 12. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, God is not only destroying creation as you and I know it because of the effects of sin, the curse of sin that is upon it, but he is destroying it because he is going to make it new. And so he will bring about new heavens and a new earth. So what is so sin-scarred and fully 
infiltrated with sin, God will destroy and he will make new heavens and a new earth and it will never, never be touched by sin. What a glorious day of eternity that will be. So think with me about the new heavens and the new earth. Now, you and I don't have an English word that quite correlates with the original language word, kainos, for new. It's translated new. But this is like never seen before new. This is like there's nothing in comparison to new. This is something altogether brand new. And that's what God says he is going to make. He's going to make new heavens and a new earth. Now, in that place, as we know from other scripture, there will be no tears and no sorrow in that newness that God is creating. In this realm, there will be perfect peace and joy where righteousness dwells and love reigns supreme. And this will be the perpetual presence of the heavenly father and will experience the fullness of his glory and beauty and dwelling in eternal communion with him forever with him. Imagine the world where righteousness prevails and harmony and wholeness permeate every aspect of life. Consider it a place where the lion and the lamb lie down and all of creation worships the creator in perfect unity and harmony. There time will lose its grip and we will enter into the eternal now, into the everlasting presence of our God. In the new earth, we will walk in the company of the saints that have lived throughout the ages united in a symphony of worship and adoration forever basking in the glory of the Lamb of God encountering the never-ending discoveries of God's goodness and beauty this is the magnificent inheritance that is prepared for us in the new heavens and the new earth so in the new earth we will experience something that we've never imagined before the wondrous glory of God fully emerging, emerging, emerging in every aspect. So like the apostle Peter here, we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God when his promises are complete and the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells is fulfilled. That's what we're longing for. So Peter mentions three very important realities in this text that I think applies an emphatic statement to each of our lives. The day of the Lord will come dissolving all things. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The day of God will bring a culmination of the redemptive plan when all things are made new and Peter asked us, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And the day of eternity will begin with new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, you can't help but frame that because of the way the English language works. You can't help but frame that as a question. But Peter did not write that as a question. You notice in your Bible, there is no question mark in that verse. And why is he doing that? He is making an emphatic statement. 
You might call it a rhetorical statement. There is a, there's a perceived understanding. The answer is perceived and is known to be true. And so he is using these, these tools to make a, a great emphatic statement. Knowing all this, knowing what the scripture is opening up to us, we ought to live in such a way. And what is that way? But holiness and godliness. And he is making that pressing point to us. I have um, known a lot of people that want lots of teachings on revelation in the future, the, the, the prophetic notions that are to come and want us to explain those things. And I get that. There's a hunger to know those things. But I think any hunger to know about the future of heaven, of judgment, of, of the, the Bema seed and all those things, any of that effort to press towards that ought to be that we would understand where we're going and how we ought to live today. It ought to transform us. It's not just about knowledge about heaven. It's not just knowledge about seeing what God will, will provide for us, but it's seeing what God has provided for us. What, uh, what kind of people ought we to be? That's what Peter is saying here. Knowing these truths, that God will dissolve all things, that he's bringing a culmination of the redemptive plan, and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. What sort of people ought we to be in godliness and in holiness? And so what an exclamation that is. So knowing these things are going to come about, this is the point of the message today. What kind of people ought we to be? In holiness in righteousness. Now he's not saying you ought to be holy and you ought to be godly. He's saying if you understand the redemptive plan and the work of Christ in your life, you are holy and you are godly. That's a heart and mind thing. That's an action thing. I'll, I'll mention that in just a moment. But he's saying what measure of those people ought you to be. It, every one of us ought to be holy. Every one of us ought to be godly. That's what Christ was doing. He's redeeming us. What the Holy Spirit is doing. He is shaping us. He's moving. And so what ought you to be in holiness and in godliness? Now, holiness deals with our actions. It is our purposefulness to be spirit-filled and to respond to the Spirit's filling. To be spirit-filled means to be spirit-controlled. And he is the Holy Spirit. So he is moving us to be controlled with holiness. What sort of people are you to be? You ought to be controlled with holiness of the Spirit of God, supernaturally empowered by the working of the sanctity of the Spirit in our hearts. Holiness deals with our actions and godliness deals with our attitudes. In other words, we have a mindset given to us by Christ. We have a mindset to godliness. And that godliness is marked with reverence. We understand God's commands and we want to reverently follow them. We want to live a life of godliness. Now look, you're, you're not going to be able to work yourself towards holiness. You're not going to be able to work yourself towards godliness. This is brought to us by the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only God could take away the holiness and impute the righteousness. Only God could take my sin-scarred mind that is eager to do sin and give me a different mindset, the mind of Christ. Only God can do that. Transform us by the renewing of, of our mind. So holiness is the action. Godliness is the attitude. 
So holy conduct rules our behavior and godliness rules our heart. So now we're seeing, understanding God, what you're gonna do in the future with this world, understanding what you're gonna do in the universe and all of its destruction and demise, understanding the fulfillment of our redemption and understanding the new heavens and the new earth Oh God, knowing where I'm going, let me walk in godliness and holiness to the degree that would bring Christ our Lord great honor. Let me live in that way. Help me to live in that way. Now, John has already told us that we are not people of this world. By grace, uh, the Lord says that he has ushered us out of this kingdom and into a kingdom of light. John says that we are no longer to love the world or the things of the world. And Peter says, why would you love that which is going to be ultimately destroyed anyway? And that changes how we ought to live in holiness and godliness. Knowing where this is going, that changes how we live while we're here. So the day of the Lord will come. And he will dissolve all these things. And according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, this reality is what we are waiting for and hastening. Uh, waiting is an expectation. It's an anticipation. It's uh, since the Lord will rescue us from the day of the Lord and we will live eternally with God in the glories of the new heavens and the new earth in righteousness, we, knowing where we're going, should it live out our life in that expectation. Lord, knowing one day that you are gonna make my body glorious as Christ, never to be touched by sin, Lord, let me live in the fullness of that truth today. Let me eagerly anticipate sinlessness. Let me exercise in the power of the Spirit by the renewal of my mind the things of God. Let me walk in holiness and righteousness. That's the kind of prayer that he's asking us to pray. A waiting, an expectation, and hastening. That's a longing for. It's a desire. I'm anticipating the Lord coming. Now listen, if you're, if you're watching a bunch of muck, if you're involved in a bunch of sin and and you're living in the flesh and you're acting as one who is not redeemed, as one who doesn't recognize where God is bringing you and the sanctifying work of the Spirit today and holiness in God. If you're living in that way, your anticipation is not real. This is our great motivation. We are anticipating that Christ is going to return. We are anticipating that he's bringing us into a righteous world that he will make altogether new. And Lord, knowing where the finish line is, I want to be on a trajectory of running that race to that place of righteousness. Help me to anticipate. Help me to be eager in desire for this. It is what 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, Maranatha, that one powerful word saying, oh Lord, come. That's the anticipation. And we just have a sense of Maranatha. Hey, when you settle down in the evening and you turn on the TV or you open up your device and you start your scrolling, would you first utter Maranatha? Oh, Lord, come. Lord, come. I don't want to be embarrassed if you come tonight. Come. 
And when you're talking to friends, let Maranatha be on your lips. Oh, Lord, come. And I don't want to be embarrassed in this conversation I'm about to have. And when you're just engaging in the mind and the imagination and the creativeness that can come in the flesh, first whisper out a prayer, Maranatha, oh, Lord, come. I don't want to be embarrassed in this moment of my thoughts. Let me anticipate you. That's a chastening of our lives, of our bodies, in this holiness and godliness. Now, this is not new to Peter. If we go back into 1 Peter, we'll recognize he's been pounding this drum for a while. Listen to this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let your mind be engaged there. Anticipate this is the day. Hey, before your feet hit the floor, oh, this might be the day of the Lord. Let me live like it. This might be the day. Oh, Lord, I'm anticipating it. Maranatha, come. Let me close with a section from the Apostle Paul. They're in great sync, Peter and Paul are in, in this epistle. Colossians chapter 3 which might be one of my favorite epistles that the apostle has written. It's been such a, a staple in my life. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 7. Listen to this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What a powerful verse. Oh, if we're looking for a verse to live our life by, that might be one to choose. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Well, you hear the distinct clarity that Paul is writing there. That's who you once were. That's not who you are now. That's the world in which you once lived. That's not the world in which God is fashioning for you. That is not who you are in Jesus Christ. Who you are in Christ is very different. Let your mindset be on him and what he has called you to and what he is providing for you in the future. Let's pray together. In these last 30 minutes, Lord, you've given us a snapshot. It's like a Polaroid that we've just fanned to let the image develop before us of what the day to come is going to be. And it is going to be a, the day of the Lord in which destruction and, and wrath and judgment come. And on that day, everything will be destroyed. Lord, help us not to clamor for things that are going to be destroyed. Help us not to treasure that which will be dissolved. But instead, help us to think and treasure and store up 
eternal riches. And in a moment, that Polaroid is developing, Lord, and we see past the day of the Lord, the day of God, the eternal day of God in which our redemption will be fulfilled and our bodies resurrected and glorified. And we shall see your son, Jesus, and by your grace, we will be made like him. And knowing that is where we're going, Lord, what ought our lives to be in holiness and godliness? So help us, I pray, Holy Spirit. And knowing, Father, as that image is fully developed, there is a new heavens coming and a new earth. And we will dwell with you in all of your glory and righteousness, and you will permeate every aspect with truth and love. And as we walk and discover throughout the eternity with you, Lord, help us to have a taste of that today, discovering your truth with an expectant heart, anticipating your coming with the treasure of your word in our hand and reading it and letting it embed our thoughts, become part of who we are in our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to journey in the straight pathway to what is to come. And I pray in that Jesus will be honored and your people will know his goodness all the more. In his name I pray, amen.